So we're now going to take a look in the great grand narrative of things that I, I talked about uh, last sermon. The, the whole idea of the sweep of God's narrative of his relationship with us could be somewhat equated to boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back and they live happily ever after. Or creation, fall, redemption through Christ, and then the restoration of all things when Christ returns again. And we took a look at that last week, but now we look at not the most inspiring part of that story. This is the part of the story where suddenly uh, Meg Ryan realizes that Joe Fox is actually the guy who owns the big stores, and yeah, you've got mail, but this guy is actually evil incarnate, uh, and, and boy loses girl, the, the difficulty of the story, but you know that in the end there's going to be an amazing happy ending that, that awaits, and so even the low points of the romantic comedies that would be on TV, or more importantly, the great and grand and real narrative of our relationship with God, even the low points we can look at with wonder, realizing that despite who we are, even in these moments, there is a God who is not going to let go. And there is a God who has, in his will, determined a happy ending, yes, even for you. So let's go ahead and look at where we left off over in Genesis chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. At this point in Israel's relationship with God and their understanding of his covenants, they would not have, at this point have so clearly associated the snake or the serpent with Satan. The idea of Satan actually does seem to evolve a bit through the Old Covenant and is made rather clear, particularly in the New Testament by Jesus and ultimately in Revelation. As the, the serpent is then associated completely with Satan, Satan being the, basically the word of just being the adversary, the guy who is trying to undermine the other guy. And so here he is introduced. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, oh, I'm sorry, there's one other thing that is rather interesting here as I, as I look at this. The word crafty for the snake is a play on words of the very phrase that precedes this section. That, that is in verse 25 of chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, the word naked describing Adam and Eve uh, is, is the word arum. And the word for crafty of the snake is also arum. So there is a word play there. While they're, they're, they're uh, uh, in, in a sense, nude, uh, he is shrewd. And we, we have that little bit of a, a word play. So really particular as we connect the two sections. That we go from bliss and beauty of a perfect garden, a perfect relationship, a perfect marriage, a perfect image of self, where you can walk around like that together in wonder and in absolute bliss. And now, here comes the crafty snake. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, 
But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. So she's doing somewhat well at this point in realizing that this shrewd snake, this crafty serpent, is perhaps just engaging me in in conversation. She has the innocence and the beauty and the attractiveness of naivete. And now is trying to engage in her naivete with a crafty snake. And as soon as her, her, her God is, is coming under the microscope, by this, she is quick to defend. But she was not there when God had said to Adam, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you must not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. No, no mention of touching, nothing like that. And so there is a bit of a danger when we think that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and put another hedge around the law of God and put another barrier and another police tape a little further out for, from the law of God. And in doing so, perhaps I'll make it even more impressive. But as soon as we decide that we need to in some way add to the word of God, things don't go well. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? It's not as though God did not know where he was. It was just a kind of a salutatory phrase and really a rhetorical question that opens up this idea of let's talk about this. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from that tree And I ate it. Human nature doesn't change. (laughs) Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, "Uh, the snake, (laughs) the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, curse it. And now here comes the curse and the fall. Notice that only two things are cursed in this statement. The snake is cursed and the ground is cursed. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The word crush and the word strike is the same word in both cases. In both cases, it means it is an attack with a potentially fatal blow in mind. So 
You will attack his heel and he will attack your head. Also, it's not the idea of a one-time event. It is an imperfect sense of the verb. And so it is this idea that there is an ongoing enmity which expresses itself in this actual physical struggle between the, the snake and mankind. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Eve likely means living. The Lord God made garments of skin for, man, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Interesting, given what the snake had said earlier, wondering, was the snake flat out lying? Man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guide the way to the tree of life. You know, and interesting in Exodus 26, there is a reminder of the cherub or the cherubim, plural, guarding the entrance with twirling, flaming lightsabers of some sort or another that would for sure solidify the breach between man and God. The reminder of that in Exodus 26 is when the great barrier is set in place before the holy place and the more mundane areas of space for man. This place where there could be some sort of intersection and meeting place again as there was in the garden. The meeting place with God is always a reminder, even in this curtain, which ultimately was 60 feet high, 4 inches thick, and embroidered in purple and blue and gold. But what was embroidered in it? These very cherubim. Reminding man again that the way to, to the intimacy with God has been breached. But now as we take a look at this passage, a few things that would be very helpful to look at, even as we prepare to be able to look at this, this episode in, in our lives, and to prepare to even share in communion with Christ in light of this. Uh, first of all, as part of background, the setting for this story is not just a garden. It is a good garden, a very good garden, an idyllic orchard of the greatest of imaginations could only fall well short, embarrassingly short of what life would have been like without shame, with confidence, with security, with intimacy, one with another, a marriage that is so well integrated 
a, a suitable helper, a completion of one another, kenigdo, same, different, but yet perfectly complementary of one another, living that life one with another, with the Lord, walking with the Lord, having these, these privileges upon privileges to be able to live life in this way is the will of God that he always wanted in his relationship with us. But any parent would know if you had the opportunity to put a chip in your child's head where they would have no choice but to obey you at all times, while maybe a good number of us might go for that, <laughs> after a while when the chip is in and here comes your Stepford child yet again, I love you daddy, I love you daddy, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wear thin. And, and so God, in his omniscience, recognizes that with, without having to have the annoyance of the Stepford child and realizes that if there's going to be real communion between man and God, then man must really be made in the image of God. And the great capacity of God to be able to choose his response, to have free will, is, of course, then imbued upon those that are made in his image. And that's a great risk, of course. It's a fantastic risk. But when Caleb, out of his own free will, walks in and gives me just the biggest bear hug and gives me a big kiss on the neck and with tears in his eyes says, I love you. My goodness, that's an amazing moment in any father's life. Sure, it happens all the time. But nonetheless, it never wears thin because I know again and again and again it happens out of his own free will. And what a, a beautiful experience, phenomenon that that really is. I mean, that's the setting where we, where we find, and, and how is it then that evil or the snake enters? And we know everybody was like, well, why God? Why'd you let the snake in? What's going on with all of that? It, it, interestingly, apparently even to the, 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 the Hebrew sensibilities, this was not a question that was in their mind. And really what the question was, why did man rebel against God? Why did man become a traitor against the one who had given him so much? That's what is at the forefront. And that's even what the story seems to deal with. If this was such a kind of pivotal concept in trying to understand our covenants and our relationship with God, the Bible would have made it perhaps more clear. There are hints of the fall of Satan that occur. And we, we know from Ezekiel that perhaps it was the kind of the self-aggrandizement of himself and wanting to be like God and, and all of his self-importance and the narcissism that would have attended to him that, that ultimately you know, sent him falling where, where Satan uh, did fall like lightning, as Jesus uh, remarks in Luke 10, uh, that he was there. He saw it go, go down where that really did happen. And in that fall is then relegated to just the, the human sphere rather than where he was before. And in that sphere decides, I'm going to see if I can't do a little bit of damage to not only God himself, but to the image of God and particularly the image of God as represented by man and woman and to see if there's some sort of a way to kind of get that rift going. And any, anyone who's in a marriage knows that your marriage is constantly under some sort of, a, of an assault 
of one sort or another. And, and so that we need to remain eternally vigilant that that is what Satan would love to do to deface the image of God as he's able to take what is really represented so well in relationships between one another and especially relationship between man and woman. Uh, remember going back when God said in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them Genesis one And now Satan in his fallen state, he's off to it. But yet in the, in this garden, God in his goodness tells us back in chapter two, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat. From any tree in the garden. Verse 16. That's a good life. But I got to be real with you. There's one thing that is not going to go well with you. And for me not to tell you anything about it. Well that's not a wise idea. So God in his wisdom. Does say to him. And by the way. I would be remiss. Not to let you know about this. In our covenant that we got going on here. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And many say, well, when they did eat from it, why didn't they just kind of boom, you know, poof, turn into dust, fall to the ground right at that very moment? It's not really the sense of the phrase there. It's just as easily taken as in the day that you eat of it, you then bring upon you the sentence of death, the condemnation of death that would be yours. So if someone to try to find some sort of a, a contradiction there, it's not actually found if you look at the text with, with greater care. Well, nonetheless, here is the situation. And what, is it not wrong for, for God? I mean, is it, is it not fair for God? I mean, God forbid that we, in our arrogance today, become like the snake or, or perhaps even tempted like Adam in really trying to bring under our judgment the righteousness of God. And yet God set for them a more, more than adequate setting and a more than adequate relationship. If God had said in a kind of a different way, let's say to Adam, all right, Adam, you are working the land, amazing stuff. You're subduing it. You're cultivating it. Beautiful stuff. You know what? There's, there's some great growth over there of some, uh, shrubberies, and if you could kind of shape those shrubberies, that would be really terrific. We got kind of a beautiful hedge. Maybe make a maze out of it. I don't know. Just, just keep on doing that that wonderful stuff that you've been doing as you've kind of extended the the work and creation as you've done. But as you're over there working on the hedge, there's a really big hole over there, and it, it's a really big hole. And if you fall into it, you will be disabled by the fall, and there will be a breach between you and me. Because that's also a part of the, the area there where I am, I'm giving you fair warning right now. Do not go over by that deep trench, by that deep hole. All right. It's, 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 it's not for you. It, it, it should remain where it is. And what if then, you know, kind of Adam leaves from kind of the morning kind of work, work uh, detail and off he goes to the hedge. And as soon as he sees the big deep ditch over there. Uh, instead of saying, oh, I'm so glad that God reminded me of this. All right, let me continue in my wondrous, fulfilling work that I have to do. But instead, tosses down the shears, jumps into the hole. Oh. Jumps into the hole, breaks his legs, completely disabled. And there he is, helpless in the hole. And God comes by. Is it not fair for God to say, I told you so? 
Like there was one, you had one job. And yet that's the very thing that you ran after. It's, you know, the, the kind of the phenomenon of the wet paint sign, right? None of you would ever think to go touch that wall. But if there were a sign on that wall that said wet paint, probably a higher percentage than ever on a typical Sunday morning would leave fingerprints on that wall out of some sort of a curiosity, a concupiscence, as the uh, kind of the old church, the, the uh, church fathers used to say, this, this kind of desire to want to wanna know those things that are forbidden. Why out of our arrogance? Why is this not permitted of us? And so all of that kind of as, as the setting it enters in the character here, not just the character, but the reality of the shrewd snake. The shrewd snake. And, and, uh, and he comes, and the way that he makes his appeal, which is important for us to look at here, because Satan's game plan is so often repeated when it's effective. And what, what is Satan's game plan here? Well, it is not only to entice us with the sensual prospect of the fruit, of, you know, some people say the apple, I've kind of shared this a lot of times before, but the reason that oftentimes people say it's an apple from which they ate and why it's so often depicted in art as an apple, even here as an apple, is because Latin was the main Bible from 400 until about 1550. And that's the only Bible that informed uh, ideas about the Bible and even word pictures about the Bible. In Latin, when you would read of this story and then you would tell of this story, the word for evil is malum. And the word for apple is malum. So that's why the apple has become the depiction of resisting evil uh, as, as you would then resist the apple. So there you go. By the way, but, but before I get away from, before I get away from uh, just, just identifying the shrewdness of the snake, it does say in Revelation 12, where we get the, the kind of the closer identity of it, and not only from Jesus, who also identifies Satan as the adversary, uh, the serpent as the adversary, as the liar, as the father of lies, native language lies. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth. And so that did happen. Most speculate that that event somewhere in the grand cosmic scheme of things happened somewhere between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And now here he appears on the scene in Genesis 3. And here's his tactic. Did God really say? Seems as though, hey, let's just have a little bit of dialogue here. You know, we'll just kind of bat these ideas around one to another. Ah, just, ah, let's just kind of do a thought experiment, if you will. And let's do a thought experiment, oh, let's say about God himself. And let me go ahead and subtly undermine the goodness of God through my thought experiment or even the sovereignty of God. And that's often what Satan would love for, for you to actually do as well, is for you to go ahead and speculate about the goodness of God as it relates to your own life. And really is God withholding something from you that what's the harm? What's the harm in knowing good from evil? What's the harm in all of these things? And what's the harm in my victimless crime? If I decide to go ahead and, and look at that provocative picture on the internet, is God keeping that from me? 
Why these constraints that are going on? Why, why, why? And all of these things, I think, come, come into play again and again. And it is the way that, that Satan goes about this, is that he often does this to us. Is he presents something that is sensually desiring. Sensual, I just mean our senses, right? Taste, touch, smell, etc. That, that to our senses, there is something that is desirable. And as he beholds the, the, the fruit before Eve, and also later, Adam is right there as well, by the way. It's not like he's you know, just coming in uh, at an arm's length transaction. But when she perceives it, she sees that it is pleasing to the eye and tastes good. Good for food. It's going to taste good and it looks good. There is a sensual desire that is being dangled in front of mankind right now. But that's not enough because Satan already knows that Eve is at the ready. No, you must not eat from it. You don't need to touch it. We don't go near that thing. No, no way. She has got up in her mind a very appropriate barrier. And it is a covenantal condition that keeps us from going ahead and just doing whatever we want. Right? Why, why not? Hey, oh, look at that. You know, I've, I've, I've always kind of, um, you know, wanted a, um, uh, what, what's the new electric car? So sweet. Tesla. Tesla. I always wanted a Tesla. And, and look, there's the keys in the car. And oh my God, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Well, why don't I do that? There's a lot of reasons. But, but because my conscience is brought into Captivity with a wonderful covenant with God. I, I know that that is against the very will and the, the explicit covenant that God has laid out for me. And, and as a result, my conscience and my relationship with God provides a nice barrier that keeps me from ever going into places like that of jumping in the car and saying, see ya. And, and so I don't. And, and so Eve would not either. And Adam would not either because they recognize, no, we have a great God and he's taking care of us and he's given us explicit directions. We have any tree. We have this relationship. We have these wonders of our life. There's just one call and that is to stay back from the, the tree. Of, not to not touch it, but just do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan knows that that's what he's up against. And he also knows that's what he's up against with you as well. When... when, when when he knows that for you, you know, do not be harsh with your children and do not exasperate them. Right? He knows that you know that. Also, with regard to the covenant with your wife, your covenant with God and the purity that you have is that, that, that you know that you are not to look at a woman lustfully. That whatever it is that would cause you to lust, you should gouge it out, cut it out, throw it away. Whatever that image is. And, and so even as that image that might pop up, of, of course, you know, you, you've got a, a ready reliance upon your covenant with God that would keep you from that in a very healthy manner and allow you to live in alignment with the beautiful will of God. And at the end of the day, to know the integrity and the character that really has been provided you through that, that covenant with God. So Satan knows he's up against that. So he doesn't just have to present a beautifully airbrushed woman on that website for you. He also has to provide a fine-sounding excuse so that you, in your arrogance, can go ahead and think that you are an exception to the covenant with God. 
You and your arrogance, me and my arrogance, can think as we kind of buy into the fine-sounding excuse. Whether it might be, no, 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 God, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open. You'll be like God, knowing good from it. You won't die. That's not what's going to go down here. Uh, yeah, he, he may have said that, but that's just because you're young, you're naive, and you just need this little bit of help. But, but in fact, this is what's going to go, go your way. And, and so it's it, in our arrogance to want to supplant God, in our arrogance to not want to need God, in our arrogance to want to be self-sufficient, and even in our arrogance to just want what our flesh wants. To, to like the good-looking fruit, the good-tasting fruit, the appeal of it all, the, the, the image on the page, the pornographic titillation that perhaps could, could um, you know, bring about some sort of... Um, sensation of pleasure. We want it, we want it. And so we then begin to entertain what it is that, that Satan brings our way. And, and who knows what it might be? Oh, go ahead. Who's it going to hurt? Oh, go ahead. Maybe you'll learn something from it. Oh, go ahead. Better to go ahead and have a pressure release valve with that than you to do something worse and perhaps go try to seduce some woman out on the streets. Who knows what it is and, and who knows whatever the particular sin is, but it's always the same thing. There is a sensual appeal and then there is an appeal to your arrogance that you're special and you have a loophole in your covenant with God. And you can go ahead and disregard that covenant with God. He's not really all good. And, and if he is, it's at a level that you aren't able to understand in your limitedness. So how are you supposed to be able to get that anyway? So go ahead. And then, by the way, just to add more loopholes to you, then go ahead and repent later. Like, really repent later. And everything's going to be okay again. Because, you know, you got grace. And that's all going to work as well. Right? All of that continually kind of comes our way. And Satan works it well. And so we have got to be people that recognize that what... God calls good, we call good. And what God calls bad, we call bad. It's not for us to arrogate to the tree of good and evil that we suddenly become the arbiters of good and evil. We live in a world where good is evil and evil is good. And if, if we're going to allow this world to shape our minds uh, around us rather than to, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2, well, then, then we're going to be in a world of hurt along that. And so the forbidden fruit... Is, is brought before Adam and Eve, and they partake of it. And, and as they do, death came through one man, and the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15. That as they decide to go ahead in the face of the knowledge of God, to go ahead... And transgress the covenant. Ignore. Commit cosmic treason. To be a traitor to the one that has given so much to them. And then the consequence comes their way. So should it have come our way? Is it fair? It's Adam who sinned. If I were there in the garden, we'd all be naked right now. Who would have had it going on? I had a Filipino friend once say to me, Yeah, you know what? Obviously, obviously Eve wasn't Filipino because it wouldn't have gone down that way. Because if Eve was Filipino, we know what would have happened. She would have tossed the apple and eaten the snake and we'd all be fine at this moment in time. 
That is just an argument like the one that Satan was making an appeal to Adam and Eve with. Is it really fair? Is God really good? We need to recognize that, yes, in Adam, we all sinned. In Adam, we all were condemned. In Adam, we all faced judgment. We all experienced guilt. We all are introduced to shame. We have breached our relationship with God. And we now live in a world of thorns. In Adam, this happened. Was it fair? It was Adam had an intimate relationship with God. Adam had daily walks with Lord God Almighty. Adam had the most idyllic surroundings that he could have ever had. Adam had everything provided to him. Adam had fulfilling labor. Adam had a perfect marriage. All of this was his. Just one stipulation. Was it fair? Yeah. Would you have, have, have fallen? You bet you would have. Would I, you bet I would have as well. And so we... we Know from, from God's goodness, from God's justice, that this situation that, that went down in Eden is more than fair for all of us. And, and yet man decides, man decides, despite all that is so clear to us before God, in our free will, in our arrogance, that I want to have greater sovereignty. I want to, in some small way, supplant God. I know a little bit better than God in this situation right now. I'm more fair. I'm more enlightened. I'm more caring. I'm more discerning. And so I go my own way, knowing full well the clarity of God's will for my life. And, and I think, oh my goodness, how, how painful this is for me. But in, in this story, I am Adam. You are Adam. You are Eve. This is who we are. This is what... God wants us to, to recognize by showing us this fall. That as much as you want on your own, with all of the advantages that common grace may supply you. We've got paved roads. We've got climate control. we got processed foods. We've got fries that be, can be done a little bit extra crispy from McDonald's cooked to order. We're living the life. we got all of that. And yet, nonetheless... Again and again, whether it presents ourselves through a choice morsel of gossip, whether it be through materialism, whether it be trying to gain my fulfillment through my achievement in the job rather than through my identity in God. Whatever it might be, again and again, we go the route of relying on something other than God, the route of idolatry, the route of a breach and cosmic treason again and again. And so God then tells this story, and we'll see this story throughout Genesis, transpire again and again in little moments of God trying to come in and redeem. He, he makes the, uh, the, the clothes for them to, to cover their, their shameful nakedness. He, he's able to be able to bring them into a place where they recognize, all right, God is still for us. And not against us. Yes, the ground has thorns. But guess what? It still produces food. Yes, childbirth will be difficult. But we will still have children. Yes, marriage is, is now going to be a difficult situation. With the, the woman kind of desiring the man for, for, for the ability to have children. And man perhaps exploiting women. But, but nonetheless, we still have the opportunity for community and for one another relationships and for marriage itself. 
God still provides all of that when he could have just as easily wiped it all away. And while he provides all of that, we'll now, we now enter into the biblical narrative through the rest of the story with God even sending special interventions. Whether it be a prophet, whether it be the law, whether it be miracles, whether it be man in the desert, whether it be redemption in some smaller way out of slavery, whatever it might be, we begin to see it. And again and again, man embracing it only to grow more self-sufficient and decide to ignore God and go our own way. And is that not the story of our own lives until we come to realize that God so frustrated with mankind and so frustrated with me and with you decides, I think I'm going to have to raise the stakes. I think it's going to have to be something more that, that happens here. And I'm going to have to show them redemption in a more spectacular way. And so while Adam disobeyed concerning the tree, and while Adam is God's first son and the first man, Romans 5 tells us that God now sends us a new Adam. And who is that new Adam? It's Jesus. And Jesus will now represent strange fruit, foreign fruit. And while Adam disobeyed concerning the tree, Jesus obeyed. Concerning the tree. Romans 5 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And as we get ready to take communion, I want us to contemplate this Real fact that in considering the tree, Adam faced temptation in paradise, in beauty, in community, in affirmation, in love. Jesus faced temptation in a desert, in isolation, no sensual pleasures, no food, no water. For 40 days and was bombarded with all that Satan had to offer to be able to see if there really was redemption for us. And while Adam disobeyed concerning the tree, Jesus obeyed concerning the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. As that happened, the curtain that separated man from God, from the profane, from the holy, was torn from top to bottom. The curtain that represented the cherubim, which kept man from God, from the ultimate intimacy, took away the breach. And those cherubim, which were embroidered on that barrier to the Holy of Holies, that cherubim blockade was torn asunder by Jesus' obedience on the tree. And so while Adam was told, do not eat from this tree, we are told by Jesus, 
regarding this strange fruit, regarding this tree. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant which poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And so as we now contemplate the fall, our complete alignment with Adam and all of that, we now consider too the ultimate redemption. We disobeyed concerning the tree, but he, Jesus, obeyed. And now he calls all of us into a continual remembrance of that obedience and calls us to eat from that tree. Knowing that as we continually do so, as we do so as community, the ultimate restoration of all things will be manifested through us as the body of Christ. And as Romans 16 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is a statement to the church in Rome of what the church will do. And that as long as we remain unbelievably grateful, overwhelmed in the most fantastic of ways, that Jesus came in our stead, came in as the second Adam, came to obey concerning the tree, and now allows us to eat of a fruit that is so precious, so sacred, a reminder of what privileged place that we have, a reminder of what grace is ours, a reminder of what significance and power is ours, and also an anticipation as we live this out, as we look for ways to manifest our gratitude for what he's done, we do so by stomping out evil ourselves. In our own lives, in our lives one with another, and as we go forth and make the obedience of Christ to the tree, known to all. Known to all who only know the frustration of not being able to say no to the temptations that have come their way. Just as we were completely frustrated in a cycle of temptation itself. Now we who have been set free get to go forth and make this great difference. And as we take this communion... Remember Jesus' obedience. Remember the fruit from which we now eat. But also remember, living this out is going to have a tremendous effect. Let's pray first for the body.